If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support us in exchange for exclusive access, early access and so, so, so much more, check us out over on Patreon. You can find us at www.patreon.com slash aaopera. Hello, hello, hello and welcome to AA Opera Podcast episode 44. I'm glad you knew that, because <laughs> I had a little panic in my head. What 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 are we on? It's good to be back this week. Abby, how has your week been? It's, it's gone by a lot faster this week than last week, I have to say. Suddenly we're on Wednesday. Yeah. But no, it's been good. I, I feel like I'm actually ahead. I mean, I haven't been ahead, but I like I feel more on top of things this week than I did previously. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I am productive. I am like on my toes mm-hmm. in a good way like I'm excited I had a really good singing lesson yesterday so I'm just kind of like ooh I can do anything do you ever get that way after singing lesson? yeah oh, every time without <laughs> fail just a good sing song in a day just I it's almost like therapy I feel more relaxed after yeah it. I think there's also when you have good singing technique it's all about like yeah and relaxing and letting your body yeah. sing it out and then it's just like you don't feel tired Cool. But yeah, tell me what's been going on with you this week. Ah, uh, it's been as like you. It's it's flown over this week. Um, I must say that we've not addressed the fact that we're sat in the same room right now. We haven't. And <laughs> it just it's very nice to see your genuine response to things rather yeah. than trying to read it through a screen <laughs> or in delay. We've had episodes where we like recorded everything in like a slight delay. <laughs> That's true. Um, but this week it's been a it's been a good week. It's uh my partner Lewis's birthday this week so happy birthday um, it's his birthday tomorrow so I'm just kind of prepping things um so <laughs> I just yeah it's been a little bit stressful but I'm really excited to just actually take a day off and spend some time yeah it's really important to do that too yeah and I think right now I think we have to address the fact that we don't know what like tomorrow is going to look like at this point this is very true. So we're recording this uh, Wednesday <laughs> and Bojo is due to speak tonight, I believe. Um, and we're pending lockdown, I think. Yeah. But fingers crossed, that's not the case. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but I do have to give everyone like a big hug on television. Mm-hmm. To anyone who's like, ah, I'm not really in a good mood, watch Bake Off. Yes. Like, I know it's, <laughs> Not what we usually talk about on this podcast, but, like, watch Bake Off. I, I feel like Matt Lucas is popping up in my life <laughs> more and more these days. I love Matt Lucas. He's just a joy. Like, he just... The camera was just panning, and he just had a cupcake on his head at one point. <laughs> it was like, He is a bundle of joy. So, if you're feeling down, make sure you watch Bake Off. Or, you can stay tuned on this podcast, because we have Ian Bell joining us this week he is just the nicest person again and such a talent it it can't it can't go without saying that oh my god his music is incredible i was a little bit um starstruck when we we, uh interviewed him but he's the nicest guy he's the nicest guy he has the biggest smile on his face like all the time Mm -hmm. anytime (laughs) (laughs) yeah I don't think Ian needs much more of an introduction. I don't think so that. either. I think um, we should let them just enjoy just, the fun. Just enjoy, guys. Just yeah. sit back and and listen up because this one's a good one. This one's a good one. So, hello. We 
are here with Ian Bell, composer Ian Bell. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Um, I'm Ian Bell. I'm a London-based classical composer. And um, for the last 12 years, 13 years, I've um, been really lucky to have my music performed around the world. Kind of known for writing music often featuring the voice prominently, um, which has been opera, songs, song cycles, things like that. But um, yeah, I've been making a lot of music and it's been fun. Excellent. Excellent. We can't wait to hear more. Um, just to begin with, can you tell us what your first experience of opera was? Right, first experience of opera. Um, opera proper would have been when I was at school, um, GCSE music. And I remember the teacher putting on Pelleas and Melisande, you know, Debussy's uh, oh. one, the opera. Um, and knowing that, it, knowing at the time that it, it it wasn't necessarily an entry-level piece. You know? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's not your M or anything. It's like... <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, but being kind of beguiled by that web of harmony and, and, and um, that opera's often in some way told at a bit of a distance. It's told in, an, in a slightly remote, removed way, you know, through fable and imagery, but finding mm. it really intriguing and really beguiling. Um, so I think that was my first experience of right now, children, sit down, this is an opera, that kind yeah. of thing, you know. <laughs> That's actually yeah. a really great one to start with. I never thought about that one because it's just so you have to pay attention and it doesn't make sense at first. No, and you have to suspend belief. I mean, you've got, yeah. you, <laughs> you've got this little child that only says kind of wee papa. <laughs> <laughs> And a woman whose hair can be climbed up. I mean, it is, it, it, it's not a kitchen sink drama. So I think you have yeah. to believe and therefore you just have to go for the ride. And at that time, I, I used to be able to play the piano much better than I do now. And Debussy was kind of my jam. Mm. So to hear an extension of that sound world that I've been exploring pianistically in a symphonic and vocal manner was, you know, quite, quite fun for the 14 year old. Magic. That's amazing. Yeah. So then, how from that did you get into composing? So, well, it, composing started earlier. So I was kind of writing from oh, about the year before. Wow. Oh, wow. Oh, look, this is, it's not music you'd want to be listening to now. It's like, <laughs> not radio ready. <laughs> but, Child prodigy. <laughs> I wish, you know, I, I wrote at the time. But um, it, it was an instinct that I had that was innate, obviously. I was needing to express myself, not knowing it, it was composing at the time. But um, on the recorder, um, recorder became a smaller keyboard, became a bigger keyboard, became a clavinova. You kind of get it, you know, when my parents kind of observed that I was doing something that needed some kind of nurturing. I was kind of doing that, not, not uh, making anything of it. It was just something I did. You know, I was one of a big family. I've got four brothers and we all did something different. So music was just my thing. I had brother, other brothers did rugby, martial arts, you know, that music was my thing. And I was left to do it, and it was good because it meant I never developed mm. a sense of oh, preciousness or, you know, oh, it's Ian, let, let him be. You know, he's got to do this thing. You know, I was writing and playing and practicing in the midst of all <laughs> what you can imagine, you know, in the, in the midst of my brothers watching TV and us play fighting, and, you know, it was just all going on. And yeah. uh, joining secondary school, so at the age of 12, I had a, uh, a music teacher who I think had been, uh, well, she was a, she was a soprano. I think she'd been in the BBC Singers or in the BBC Symphony Choir or something like that. You know, she, she was a professional standard singer. 
but so with a legitimate soprano voice. But more than that, she dressed in a different outfit every day. You could smell her before you saw her because she was so <laughs> fragranced. She had a flair, and you can imagine the kind of thirteen-year-old gay boy <laughs> in me was just kind of obsessed with this woman who, who, you know, wore themed tights for Valentine's Day. <laughs> Oh. Oh, oh, and she would she would conduct the regular concerts yeah. that were at school, you know, Christmas Easter Dodo concerts, and but the outfit wouldn't be revealed. She'd be coming in a coat, but the outfit wouldn't be revealed until. Oh, amazing! <laughs> so we had some kind of real grandiosity in the best sense, in in the way that you you know one sees in Anna Netrebko or Angela Georgiou in in just Norman, you know. Yes. Just, and I was inspired, I was inspired by the noise she was able to make. And um, yeah, and, and I was and introduced to opera, as I say, by Palais and Lissande. And I kind of got better as time went on. And, and um, yeah, and I, and I just... You were just drawn to it. Yeah, and I think key to my being able to just get on with it was the fact that I'm not from any kind of musical family in any, in any way. You know, we're, we're just from a kind of working class family in Northwest London. And because there was no, as I said before, sense of preciousness about it, I was never uh, inspired to develop a sense of uh, having to wait for the muse to descend or, you know, it was just what I did. I, it, I, did, I didn't know it was composing or, or, or practicing. I, it was just, and I think that made, meant I didn't have any baggage when it came to just sitting down and doing the work. Yeah, you, you weren't like comparing yourself to no. to others constantly, which is, no. you know, a common no. thing with, with young musicians to... Yeah, not yeah. that. Yeah. But it's also then it's something that's totally and yours. It's mm, like you yeah. have ownership over it. So whatever you do yeah. is your work. Oh, I kind of wish I would have met this teacher. Like I can just imagine the grandiosity <laughs> of like a woman coming in and being like... I'm going yeah. to reveal. It's like Miss Frizzle. Did you guys have the magic school bus? <laughs> yes, it's the magic school bus. I don't know this, but <laughs> it was. They had the science teacher or the the homeroom teacher, which was actually the science teacher, was like over the top and wore outfits compared to like what the lesson of today was, like from oh, <laughs> from like earrings. To, to heels, they all match. So if it was rainbow, she had rainbow earrings, rainbow heels, rainbow like 1940s yeah. fluffy dress. Just amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so apart from Debussy and your music teacher with a uh, fantastic fashion sense, absolutely. Do you, do you have any um, other influences behind your oh God, yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I love music, which particularly harmonically makes you go, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, where you get taken to a place where you're like, oh, I didn't, oh, uh, 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 okay. You know, where you're slightly discombobulated, disorientated. And, you know, I find that equally in the ancient medieval music of Machot, Leonan Perrotin, I find, you know, when you hear Dunstable, before harmonies are really fixed, you know, in, in the, into the diatonal harmonies we used to now, and you just suddenly have these shifts, or you'd be, in, and I, I just find that, or they just suddenly end on, just ends on a cadence, which we're not used to now. And you think, oh. So I love music that stops me in my tracks harmonically. But as I said, that can be the ancient medieval boys. 
and of course Hildegard girls too. Uh, and um, but then if we come further this way, I love what Puccini was doing. At, to, you know, toward the latter end of his career. So we see in, in, in Tritico, in, in um, Torrandotz, you know, you're thinking, gosh, if you lived a bit longer, where would you have gone? Um, Berg, you know, we have in Wozzeck, we have the most gorgeous, intimate, um, honestly beautiful, and not just to ears that are used to contemporary music, but beautiful lullabies to the little kid. And then you have the most crashing, uh, thrusting harmonies, um, Ligeti, I love, I love, 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 love Ligeti because he does that too. You know, he's, so it, it's a, it's a mix, you know, ultra melodic, but also um, you know Ligeti can't really be accused of being ultra melodic, but he does something that's kind of unsettling, and I love that. I oh, I love that type of music too. It just makes me, it makes your skin crawl in a good way. Like it just keeps your senses moving. You're predominantly yeah. known for composing for the voice through opera and song cycles, as we've said. What do you enjoy about composing for the voice? Um, I, I love that it's the most, for me, it's the most heightened form of storytelling. So even when I've written song, with a few exceptions, they're generally about something happening um, rather than uh, an, uh, an expression of a homage to nature, for instance. You know, there, there's something, I love to, to portray things happening, stories happening in music. Um, I, I, th I think that's, I love the fact that every voice is different. Um, so, you know, I, for instance, I've written in my operas four coloratura soprano roles in, in my operas, but they're all really different, written, you know, written for different sopranos. Um, so I love that, that, that shading that different voice types, you know, offer. Um, so, I th and I also, I love words, you know, I, I, I like languages. I, I don't. I, I love to express myself. I'm quite. I can be chatty, <laughs> so I don't let words get in the way of. You know, I, 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 they don't. They're not an obstacle in any way in my day to day life. And I just like to express myself. And I think having uh, had some, quite a few opera commissions early on because I became known for writing song and very happily became known. Further commissions then came in for the, for the same kind of work, which I love. Do you enjoy writing for a particular voice type out of? Out of well, I think, yeah, well, so <laughs> oh. I, I, no, I do. <laughs> it's just that's a really difficult question to answer. Do you think of the voice that you're composing for, or do you think of the general like voice box? Or is there someone specific that you have in mind? Well, often there, when, when, when I'm getting commissions nowadays, I generally do know. Um, and, and when I do know, for instance, so I'll come to that when I come to this. So I'll just, I'll just come, so that is, we're on pause with that. Okay. So, we're on pause. No problem. Yeah. So for instance, you asked about favourite voice type. I was recently very lucky to get commissioned from the Liverpool film. And they said, it's our 175th. We're commissioning several composers to write a concerto for their instrument. And I was like, coloratura soprano, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's me. <laughs> so um, I had the joy of of writing um, a piece for Coloratura Soprano. Now it's quite um, a fair judgment to say actually Coloratura Soprano is a repertoire rather than a voice type. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a repertoire that certain voice types have an affinity for, but not necessarily a standard voice type. Well, we'll see. Um, just putting that out there. But for instance. Uh, 
when, when I wrote my first opera, uh, Diana Damrell was the lead. She, was, she played the lead Malhakadal in Harlot's Progress, uh, seven years ago. So, um, so she and I were very close. We'd done lots of stuff already before then. But as I've done with all my singers that I've worked with um, since, is I really um, anatomize the voice. So I'll make sure I attend performances when it's geographically uh, available so I can hear them live, so I can hear overtones, I can hear, you know, things like that. In, a, in an acoustic space, but then I like to have sessions with them where they get to sing for me. They're stuff that really shows, you know, the sweet spot. Um, so I can then hear clear, clearer to me, um, things like speed of onset, uh, where they vow modif modify, exact place where the passaggio is, um, if there are any holes, you know, just all those things, where, you know, where the different registers uh, are butting each other, where do they need to cover, where, those kind of things. So, for instance, when I had my Jack the Ripper opera last year at the English National Opera, there were six soprano roles in it. But they, because I did this work with them, they were all very different. So, you know, we had Josephine Barstow, and that was a real dramatic soprano role. There were things I was able to do with her higher register in terms of her... Um, how long she was able to sit, you know, in that tessitura for what kind of orchestration I could have around it. And then we had Janice Kelly, her, in it, her role was more of a lyrica spinto role, so it had more of a blade to it. There are certain things that that meant I was able to orchestrally. And then at the lighter end, you had um, Leslie Garrett, although the voice is very rich, she still got that soubrette quality, and it meant uh, I could then do certain things with that too. And I was able to write around that. But even then, so that soprano, but even in coloratura soprano roles or coloratura, coloratura soprano writing, there are so many shades. So you have Diana, who is perhaps at the darker end of the coloratura soprano, singing the heavier, heavier side of that rep. And then in my most recent opera, Stonewall, I had a, a coloratura soprano role of a... Uh, a former patient who was going to, through electroshock therapy. And uh, that role was far more akin to Olympia or, or, or Fiacamilli. You know, that was much lighter, much brighter. Uh, so, yeah, there's so, that's what I love about voices too, that there's so much, so much there. What a spectrum. And that's within, within one fuck of one voice tone. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so much that, you know, to be done, so much to be done. Yeah. Um, would you like to talk to us a bit more about Jack the Ripper? Because our UK listeners yeah. are, will know you for um, your work with ENO, yeah. and we'd love to hear more just about your influences behind the music, absolutely, and the story, absolutely. and everything yeah. like that. So, I long wanted to do a trilogy of London operas, and I've done it now. So, the first one was a yes. progress, which was based on Hogarth's Pictures, which premiered in Vienna in 2013, as I said, for Diana. Uh, then the year later, I did a Christmas Carol at Houston Grand. That was based on Dickens' Christmas Carol, but it was the one-man version that Dickens himself used to perform around the place. That Simon Callow does mm -hmm. in the West End, so we kind of used that text. He directed it. Simon directed it. Um, and then I always wanted to do a Jack the Ripper opera. I always wanted to do, but about the victims, about the women, not about him, um, because I always found it really uh, unjust and quite awful that these women were only known by the manner in which they died. And I don't think anyone deserves that. I, th I think that's, that's abhorrent. I, th I think 
regardless of your circumstances, we all have rich lives. You know, I sometimes find myself in the tube when, when one can be in the tube, looking at people thinking, gosh, every one of these people has, has a web of people in their life, has things, has their own lives. And, and they're not just, you know, defined by the fact I've just seen them in a tube. You know, they've got, life is a rich tapestry. And I, I thought how awful that, that these women are, if their names are even acknowledged publicly, you know, he's far larger, he looms far larger than they do. So I thought, well, you know, writing roles for women, particularly mature women, is quite important to me. There, there's, a, there's a huge dearth of repertoire for women over the age of 40, 45, 50, unless they go either the dramatic route, unless they become dramatic next to the dramatic sopranos and go the hardcore route, there isn't much lyric repertoire for women that's age appropriate. And I, and I think that that's a real shame because I find performers of all, of all shades get more interesting as they get older. I think where, you know, th th there may occasionally be diminishing vocal returns or just different things you have to work with as bodies change. Mm. What a performer can give you at the age of 50, 60, 80, Jane Josephine Barstow, <laughs> is, is often better than a 25 year old because it's just a lived experience. And exactly, I yeah. think that it's a shame that there aren't more roles for women. Um, so I thought, well, okay, I'm getting to address, to, to, give, to flesh out these women's lives, creates, you know, five roles for women over the age of 60 you know, that are, that are roles, that what they weren't just kind of, she's the nanny, she's the maid, she, you know, she, you know she, she's the batty mother-in-law, you know. <laughs> so um, that, that was the reasoning behind it. And we used the opera as an opportunity to kind of lift the veil on what London was like then. Uh, you know, it, there, there are various uh, statistics, but it's believed that at that time, one in four women at some point in their lives had to, had to do sex work because mm -hmm. there wasn't enough sewing to take in to, to meet your rent, you know, to make ends meet. There wasn't enough yeah. darning. There wasn't enough casual labor that, you know, sometimes that, you know, you had to resort to that and it was normal. And I yeah. we wanted to lift the veil on that, on, on the desperation of these women that, that they weren't just, you know, sluts that deserved it, that, you know, these women had full, full lives um, and, and things were difficult and they had no, often they had no choice. And, and mm. it, it was a pleasure to be able to explore their lives and, and explore that time. And yeah. we could. Yeah. yeah. Did you know that, so the, refreshing. <laughs> did you know that the, um, that Hayley Rubenhold was coming out with the book just at the same time? No. So when, so when the, my opera was announced, um, season, pre you know, preview, um, when the season was announced in 2018 for 2019, her publishers reached out and said, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> so we did some panel stuff together. And it, you know, obviously she, we being in opera and having only two hours to tell the story, we, ha we had the luxury of being able to play with, so everything you see in the opera happened. Everything you see, not happened in London at the time. That was our justification. But obviously we had to conflate things to, 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 to make it feel the dramatic space and to kind of terrorize, telescope the dramatic narrative. So whereas the women kind of all lived off the same street in London at the time, Dorset Street, we had them living in the same Doss house. Um, Mary Kelly, essentially the prima donna of the piece, uh, she was known in real life to take um, prostitutes in to, to shelter them when they needed shelter because she had her own place. 
we had her running the DOS. So, so we took truths, um, but everything was a lived truth. So that might have not happened to Catherine Eddowes uh, at the time, but everything happened to women at the time. And I think that was what we were trying to show. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was really funny because I finished reading the book and then I was just like, oh, this would make a really great opera. And then Googled it and then it was like, oh my God, there was an opera, there's an opera. Um, so let's go back to the process of writing an opera. And well, we've discussed about the particular singer that you have in mind, but how does it work when you work with a, you as a composer, do you get commissioned specifically for a work or do you come up with the idea yourself? Do you pick your librettist? How does that process come together? So I've always, so all my operas have been commissioned. So I've been approached by an opera house and they've said we'd like to do an opera. Um, with regards to Welsh National Opera, when I did in parenthesis and Stonewall for New York City Opera, they came to me with the idea and the libretto team was kind of in place or fi being fixed at the time. So I was, I kind of slotted in very happily and you know, both pieces were commemorative. So Stonewall was commemorative of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall riots. And in parenthesis was the centenary of the Battle of Mamet's Wood and the song, largely. And that actually, what was really lovely with in parenthesis is that um, on the very day of the Battle of the Somme centenary, we were in Royal Opera House. We had our Royal Opera House performance. So it felt really, really poignant. But with the other three operas, which were my London-based operas, I was approached, uh, you know, when I proffered the subject matter. Um, uh, and so, so at those times, so with uh, Harlot's Progress, so what happened with that, that was even more different. So Diana and I had done song cycles, orchestral song cycles, and, you know, more and more work together. And it was, it was clear that an opera would be the next uh, logical thing for us to do. So it's, I spent several months kind of thinking, well, what, what should I do, you know? Realised, you know what, sometimes plays should just be plays. Sometimes some books are just, you know, I, I looked through everything and I couldn't alight upon something that I think would have suited, you know, a singer who was singing Lucia Tra Traviata, Manon, you know, a proper prima donna. I couldn't find a prima donna um, within the, the English language play and literature. Um, I, I'd look through, I'm sure my own ignorance was also getting in the way. I'm sure there were others, but I, I hadn't stumbled upon them. Then I go to a, an exhibition, uh, the Tate Britain, and see the, the Harlot's Progress uh, etchings out in front of me. I was like, that's the one, that's the one. And at the time, I was reading Peter Ackroyd's biography of London. So I thought, which is like a thing the size of a phone book. I mean, it's astonishing. <laughs> and it's beautifully written. And he's a real London expert. But not only that, he's able to paint things in a really poetic way that makes you feel like you're there, atmospherically poetic. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to ask him if he'll do it. And I, I emailed his agent and he, he agreed. So okay. then that opera was then suggested to the Theater and Devine in Vienna. And they said, oh, yes, we'll do that. So I, that, that went as a complete project that was in place. So with Peter and I then, we had the reference, the famous reference of the six pictures. So we knew we wanted the opera to have six scenes that, that were linked. And the, the, the subject matter and, and the plot was really dictated by, by the pictures. So we, we spoke a lot about the tone initially. Um, we wanted it to be quite earthy um, and quite boisterous, quite raucous and a bit vulgar because uh, that 
that is in the pictures, you know, that there is a vulgarity and an earthiness when you look deep and look at every moment, it's, it's, they're bawdy. Yeah. Um, you want honesty as well. Absolutely, right? absolutely. Yeah. I absolutely love Hogarth's paintings. I'm absolutely obsessed with him. I think he's just well, incredible. He's astonishing. Yes, he's, he's astonishing. And obviously that was a very different choice to that which Stravinsky and Auden had made um, 60, 70 years before. You know, they were exploring the neoclassical route and uh, it was more about the witticisms of it all and, and the, the, the language, you know, whereas I was looking for something slightly more earthy. And, and that's what we did. And it was a toing and a throwing because this was the first opera he'd written. So it was just a question of him sending me something and me making suggestions, you know, oh, maybe we could do this. Maybe. But before every scene we'd start writing, we'd meet and decide on the structure of the scene, where duets would be, things like that. Christmas Carol, that already existed as a script that, as I said, Simon Callow was reading from or performing from when he did his one-man shows. What we had to do was truncate it further. Um, so I knew that if it was to be an hour and a half, an hour and 40 minutes, that would equate to sub 6,000 words. So although it sounded like an arbitrary figure, I knew that we had to take this down, you know, um, so that was what was happening with Christmas Carol. It was just, what do we need? You know, obviously we need the ghosts. You know, what needs to be seeded in, which was, you know, took a couple of months really. Um, and we were both on the same page as that. It was just a question of what, you know, things we had to lose and, and whatnot. Um, in parenthesis, the team was already in place. That was a subject matter I knew nothing about. So the, the librettist who I then collaborated on Jack the Ripper with, she, um, she was a director, she directed or co-directed 20 operas. Oh, wow. So I knew she knew the genre. Yeah, and this all happened very, very quickly. What was happening was I was commissioned to write my first three operas before the first one premiered. So I finished Harlot's Progress um, July 2012. Uh, I started Christmas Carol January 13, finished that June 13, Harlot went into rehearsal September 13. So I was really busy, but also in parenthesis was confirmed. So while I was writing Christmas Carol, my co-librettists, Emma and David, were doing the libretto for in parenthesis. So I just, in that time, had to just say, you might just have to wait a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Bit busy. But then what happened was, because David Poutney, who is one of the most experienced directors in opera in the world, he was overseeing it, being the boss of Welsh National Opera. Um, by the time Harlot finished, I came back to London October 13. I was then able to have bandwidth to deal with that, which was a really obscure metaphorical subject matter. It's about World War One. It's about one particular soldier who, um, who has visions as he's down in, on, on the battlefield. Um, so ancient, you know, he's, he's a, because he's a, a Welsh boy, he, he's seeing ancient battles of, of epic Welsh history and, and mythology playing out in front of him. So I, I needed someone to really lead me through this. So yeah. my librettist, Emma, when I got back from Vienna, um, uh, we went through every scene. Because the, the language is quite dense. Even in the opera, it's still quite dense because the, the, the book itself is extremely, almost impenetrable. You need lots of footnotes and references. But she led me through that and that, that really helped. And I got a complete understanding of the dramatic arc, of the, all the interpersonal relationships and, and all that. 
so that that was a very very lightning quick that all happened really quickly so by the time we got to um jack the ripper emma and i who emma who did the libretto for jack the ripper we had a shorthand she knew what i needed i knew what she was good at so we were then able to do that then <laughs> stonewall which was this commemorative piece um i uh, it was all very very last minute i got the it was February 2018. I got a lovely phone call. It's always lovely to get an out the blue commission phone call. You can imagine. It's like getting a gig, you know, oh my God, that's an exciting. So the boss of um, New York City Opera contacts me, says, We need an opera for June, 20, June 19, June 2019. I was still midway through orchestrating Jack the Ripper. So I was like, oh, I won't be finished till. Um, August, that's my submission. August 18 was my submission for, for Jack the Ripper. I won't be able to start it till kind of August, September, which meant I got five months to write it and orchestrate it. But we did it. We got, you know, sometimes you just need to focus, you know, um, at the love of a good man who was very much able to help me eat <laughs> basic human functions while I'm writing to Oxford. Loved it. I loved it though. It's, it, it, it's when, when you know you've got something to opera premiering within three months of each other. It kind of keeps you going, you know, you, you keep that tunnel focus. But what that meant in terms of the process was that while I was orchestrating Jack the Ripper, I went out to New York. We had a very couple of days meeting with, with the director, with the librettist. I mean, the librettist, Mark Campbell, is one of the most experienced librettists, particularly in the States. He's, 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 he's done yeah, 26 librettis or something like that. So I knew again it would be in good hands. I told him what I needed or what, but I knew that he'd be able to structure something beautiful. And he did. So they're all different, but my part in it is I, I, I respect the librettist's um, role in it. I don't try and trample over them, um, but they are as legitimate in it as I am. You know, it's, 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 it has to be, it has to be. And times where operas, in my experience, for me, have been less enjoyable or less experiences when someone's trying to trample um, on, on, on it or not give us as artists the place in the room we need to breathe and flex our, our artistic muscles, you know? Um, but, you know, New York City Opera was a joy, an absolute joy. Okay, so we've talked about the process of collaboration in the process of the creation of an opera. Yeah. What about when it when you get all of the singers involved and you go to the rehearsal room, are you ever involved in, in that process? Yeah, I mean, yes, ideally. Um, by the time we've got to that stage, so, so I've written, I've orchestrated, scores have been submitted, um, singers have learnt. Often before rehearsals kick off officially, I'll have some sessions with the singers. So, um, for instance, with Jack the Ripper, because it was London-based, it was a mainly London-centric cast, or at least Southeast-centric cast. Um, I was able to meet with them. We we went through their parts. Um, a, a trust builds up um, throughout my comp composing process, but particularly when we're in the pre-rehearsal run-throughs, and you know that they get to know that I'm, you know, collaborative. And there, there weren't any changes with Jack the Ripper because I was so hands-on before writing any of the music that nothing really needed to be altered. Um, right. Yeah. But I, uh, let me think, almost all of my operas, Harlot, I was there for the whole time. Houston Grand Opera, I was there for the whole time. In parenthesis, I was there once the orchestra came. I would go there once a week to check in, but um, mm -hmm. I was there once the orchestra arrived permanently. 
uh, Jack Ripper, I was there the whole time. New York City Opera, I was there once the orchestra came. So, mm. um, again, you know, generally the, 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 I don't really get involved in the directorial thing. Most directors follow what the librettist has, has designed. Um, so, so that, so generally, you know, if obviously if there hasn't been times and I feel that there's been something that's been uh, changed in a way that's detrimental, um, particularly only for the, see, it's, it's only for the premiere that I feel that I have got really any recourse to saying, oi, you know, once it goes elsewhere, revive, you've just got to stand back and you've just got to let, let, it, let it be, let it breathe, and let someone else's vision. But I think when it's the first iteration, I think you have responsibility to yourself and to, 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 to your art and, and to the way it's initially received. If there are things which contravene your vision of the piece, um, yeah. you kind of have to say. Um, and there have been times where I haven't done that when I should have. Um, but I've, I've kind of learned, you know, because at the yeah. beginning, you're, you're so grateful and happy to be there. You're so, oh my God, my music's being performed. And rightly so. And that gratitude should always be there. There should never, ever be a sense of routine or overly familiar. Because it's, it's magic knowing that everyone in there is there to tell your story. I mean, that doesn't yeah. literally get better. It, it, it just doesn't. It, and that, that magic has to stay. But there have been times where that my gratitude for being in the room or being given a platform has, has prevented me from actually saying, mm, mm. Okay. and we don't let that happen anymore. But yeah. in, in the main, in the main, it's just a joy to see um, a director and, and performers just have fun and just cut loose. Yeah. Um, generally when I'm in the rehearsal room, it's, 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 it's just for the conductor to turn around and say, what do you think? Do you, how do you think that MP? When the orchestra comes in, it becomes more involved. So I'm actually listening really minutely for balance, things that you know, could be ramped up down, uh, phrasing, general dynamic, the general dynamic or the general um, tempo architecture. You know, I'm, I'm listening with big when, when I have to do that, as opposed to very closely, um, when it's with the singers, it's, it's, it's a different kind of level of attention. And then so when the orchestra was involved, I, I retrenched slightly and I focused full score and, uh, you know, and, and I'm yeah. in. I just, I just think it's incredible that something that is in your head at one time can just yeah. be put on, it's just I such a, on a mass scale. It just yeah, must it, feel incredible. It, that's why the magic has never gone. That's why when you go to, to the first orchestral rehearsal, I generally don't go to the first orchestral rehearsal because that's when the orchestra needs to find you in their fingers. They need to be able to swear about you. They need to be able to, <laughs> they have to, they have to just get all that out of their system. They have to make as many mistakes as they can without feeling that I'm glaring or, you know, this kind of glowering figure in the background. Um, so by the time I go to the, either second or third orchestra, um, it's the, when you hear something that's either just been in your head or just been playing on your music software at you like a 1990s computer game that you're yeah. kind of like, that will sound better, that will sound better, that will sound better. <laughs> it, it's, it's when you hear that breath in your music, it's astonishing. Even, it's the same when a singer sing it. So I remember um, hearing uh, in Jack the Ripper, the, the singer Mary McLaughlin, who played the role of Annie Chapman, 
she she was the first singer I did any one-to-one work with on the score before we went into rehearsals. And hearing her sing her aria was just, ah, oh, that's why I do what I do, you know? Yeah. Because <laughs> the majority of my work is in this room that I'm talking yeah. to you in. Yeah. That's the old broken piano. Um, <laughs> it's a metaphor. <laughs> um, it's very Parisian to have that kind of artwork behind you, you know? Like it looks yeah. like you're in a, like, an, like in La Boheme. In a, in a... No, I'm not. How do you know where I am? Don't you judge. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, most of my work is in, is in my room. And when you're, you know, when you put your head down for nine months, to, to write Jack the Ripper, for instance. Sometimes the, the, the payoff can feel very far away, but it's the moments that you hear the singers doing their thing, you know, doing their thing, it's, oh, it's a joy. Because the lead times with opera are often really, really advanced. Although I've had a couple of, as you know, ones that have just gone on <laughs> You know, often you can submit, often you, conversations begin up. I'm having conversations now about my possible next opera, or next but one opera for 2025 and so the fact I'm talking about it now and conceptualizing now but won't hear it maybe till 2025 that that's you know you have to find ways of just keeping yourself motivated yeah. and hearing yeah. singers do stuff like that really is lovely um, but that's actually a really good point for singers in general because I think a lot of our careers are it will happen in five years like <laughs> yeah, a lot of like yeah. And I think we can learn a lot from the process of like finding something exciting along the way and like you have to. those you milestones. Have to. You have to. And, and, and as a singer, whether that can be, you know, obviously you have hopefully got engagements before the five years, mm-hmm. you know, comes yeah. up. <laughs> I would think, you know, hopefully, you know, hopefully you're not just waiting for your, you know, Musetta in Paris in 2027. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I've found that, you know, I, I went on, I only joined Instagram February and I found I, I, nothing but my view wrongly was, well, I, I don't have a visual job. My job is auditory. Why would anyone be interested in what I, you know, I don't have any, I'm not, I'm not interesting, <laughs> you know, visually. And I was convinced otherwise. And the amount, including you guys, of, of relationships and artistic relationships are built just during this you know period has been remarkable and i think as well as um the 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 gold star performances the premieres and you know things like that that we all look forward to it's it's the building of new relationships which i'm finding really really exciting that social media is enabling in a way that maybe five years ago ten years ago there would have been gatekeepers preventing us from reaching out to each other um yeah you know, the, 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 for me reaching out to singers, from singers reaching out to me, you know, there would have been agents by me getting to singers or yeah. there would be my, you know, publishers kind of saying, what, what do you want? <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah, rightly so, you know, kind of, the, the landscape was really different. Mm. And what I'm loving happening at the moment, as well as the performance, is actually conceptualised, meeting people, talking about ideas. And mm. I think, you know, that's, I love that. I'm, I'm loving that. And that is, that is one of those things that you can you know have little moments you know yeah. meeting people social media is great i mean when we started this podcast we've said it a few times now we just thought we'd be interviewing fellow friends at, at conservatoire and then we realized 
I mean, before COVID, we were actually going to networking events and like meeting people, but social media has been a bit of a, a godsend during, during COVID just to reach out to people like yourself. Yeah. Um, do you know what? And we're all, you know, I could speak for my singing colleagues as well. We're, it's, it's just, we love talking about what we do. We love lifting up the veil and just, yeah. you know, uh, a dear friend of mine is a New York-based mezzo, Isabel Leonard. And she is doing an amazing job at really, you know, very frequently online on, she's doing um, Instagram lives, talking about what she does yeah. and interviewing people in the business. Angela Brown is another, uh, Met So Far is doing the same. Um, yeah. Maxine is a violinist at the LSO and she's doing the same about her job at the LSO. It's, it's, it's really an amazing opportunity. Isabel Leonard also just interviewed Alex Baldwin, which was just like, what? <laughs> she is connected. Yeah, <laughs> yes. to say the least. Yeah, she is amazing. But um, I actually really want to talk about Stonewall for a little bit. Can you share more about Stonewall because it is such a different opera. It has a lot of jukebox songs, and like, what was that composing process oh. like? So it sounds know, so much fun, like bringing oh. all the best kind of music but, together. Stone, no, but Stonewall was just the. You know, I've been so lucky to work with the people you know, I've worked with and, and on the pieces I've worked with. But something happened with Stonewall. My cast and my other creating colleagues and the management of New York City Opera will tell you that what happened then doesn't happen often. Um, so I got the call from the boss of New York City Opera, Marco Capasso. Can, can you talk at your earliest convenience? We've got commission, we've got commission we need to discuss. And it was Stonewall. And you know, although my schedule was quite intense at the time, um, Stonewall, as I, I'll go into more detail now, the Stonewall riots and the Stonewall uprising happened in, in, in downtown New York, in the, in the kind of village area, the, the gay area of, of New York City of Manhattan. In 1969, um, a police raid happened on a, on, a, on a bar in this area, which resulted in the brutalization of many members of the LGBTQ community that in turn, our, our outrage and our allies' outrage at it led to the Pride Movement and, and um, just the elevation of human rights of, of the LGBTQ community. Um, so although I had quite an intense schedule at the time, it was very, the penny very quickly dropped that when your community asks, comes calling, you answer and you say, yes, what can I do? You know, you say yes until you have to say no. Yes. You know, it was it was my belief yeah. that 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 it was my responsibility and my indebted gratitude to all of these people to, to be able to and as a Londoner to be given the opportunity <laughs> to tell a really New York story uh, yeah. to have for a Londoner also aside from Stonewall itself to have a, a New York opera premiere with the actual not just being a co-production but the actual opera to premiere in New York City <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that I was like yeah I'm doing it <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> but that was garnish you know the real thing was being able to um, really tell the, the tale of what it was like to be in that place at that time rather like with Jack the Ripper rather than focusing on exact biographical accounts um, Mark really intelligently and in an inspired way uh, devised a beautiful cast of, of 
diverse um, characters representative of all shades of the LGBTQ community. And we see them all descending that night. They're all coming to Stonewall. Act One is seeing how their lives interlace as they're all on their way downtown. Uh, the, the, we see them partying in the bar and then the raid happens. Complete brutality, the choreography of the, um, of the actual riot and the beatings um, was when I saw it in the rehearsal, the first time I saw it was, I had such a visceral, um, disgusted response. It was so um, appalling that it was so well done. And one that at the time I was like, oh, you know, this happened 50 years ago. Goodness, thank God it doesn't happen now. And then we fast forward to this year, and we're seeing exactly the same things happening. We're seeing people being brutalized. Yeah. So, the, the, the director, complete kudos to the director and the movement team because they created something that was astonishing. So you said about the jukebox song. So rather than it being just about um, people getting beaten up, there, ha there had to be a sense of partying going on and a sense of partying mm -hmm. at the time. So um, I, uh, Mark wrote lyrics for two songs that, whose lyrics were pertinent, but without being um, overly sledgehammery. They were per pertinent mm. to what was going on. And I just listened to a lot of Martha and the Bandellas, a lot of music from the time, a lot of Phil Spector, a lot, lot of... Also saw that there was a, a list of what was on the actual jukebox in Stonewall at the time. So I listened to all of that. Yeah. Really got a handle over what the chord progressions were, over what, um, what, what was the music, what were the ingredients of the music at the time, mm -hmm. wrote yeah. songs. I wrote them in that style. They open act two, it's in three acts, they open act two. There's a, there's a musical segue and immediately goes into act two with these jukebox songs. And the performer who they engaged to um, sing them was Darlene Love. Now Darlene Love, particularly known to American audiences, um, she, we know her from, I think, um, Love Actually. The Christmas song, Christmas snow coming down, Christmas. Oh yeah. So I mean, <laughs> that, that you know, you know, yeah, it's it's a bop. So um, <laughs> she, this absolute legend of that time, singing at the time, she uh, she recorded them. She she recorded my songs, and. So what I did musically, again, musicologically speaking, so I, I composed these songs rather than orchestrate them as I, I'd orchestrated the rest of the opera. And I thought, well, I'm not a specialist in Motown music production. So mm -hmm. I did a short score. So I did um, like a, you know, the, the chords, the piano, and motives that are, you know, the vibraphone here, strings here. This mm -hmm. is the string, I want string staccati here. You know, I just suggested then, and they were given to a producer of music from the time to then flesh it out. Oh, cool. Because so, I thought, well, you know, yeah. So, so although I did, you're hearing what I wanted, I could not achieve it in the same way that a legitimate, you know, producer of that music could do. So it, mm. so it was an absolute, uh, that was a joy. And, um, and they, they worked, and the wonderful thing was Darling Love was at the premiere. She came, she was at the opening night. <laughs> and um, she, uh, she, she got lost behind stage when we were taking the bow. And it's like, well, you know, I'd taken my bow and generally the composer's kind of the one at the end, but she yeah. then came on in this most dazzling white trouser suit. 
Oh, and oh I, we, wow. we just all bowed to her. <laughs> no, but she came on and she bowed to us before she bowed to the audience. So she was in some kind of, oh my God, what is this? This is just amazing. Kind of looking to us as if, you know, we need her, you know, as if, you know, but no, it was like, no, this is your audience, darling, please. And it was a joy. And I introduced myself to her on stage. And I was like, I'm the composer. <laughs> <laughs> that was that, so. That was a real joy to to um, to share the stage with someone who I'd never get the opportunity to be anywhere near. You know, to be in yeah. the same air as someone. Oh, she totally deserved that curtain. She was like, "Yep." Do you know what, Ian? My next question was: Do you have a most memorable moment throughout your life? I thought about that because you you very kindly sent me your question ahead, and I thought, well, what is? Because I could say, do you know what? There are moments that, which as a as a composer, are rites of passage. You know, to have been on stage at Carnegie Hall with Alex Schrader or Jamie Barton. You know, (laughs) I was like, what? When doing my stuff? (laughs) Or to have a prom. You know, I had a prom at the Royal Albert Hall. Mm -hmm. That was. Yeah. Amazing. To, to be in Vienna and have an opera premiere. I mean, I've been yeah. so ridiculously, ridiculously lucky. So all of those things are moments, but fast forward to Stonewall again. Now this is a non-musical moment, but this is something that is so, it's, it's a, something I'm very proud of. And it's back to Stonewall. The cast, which was another reason it was such a joy, um, it was a very diverse cast in every way. So, you know, we had, um, because it was a cast of drag queens, there was a trans character. It, it was, you know, Lat- the Latinx community were really represented in a wonderful way. The black community, I, I, it was a joy. With the first stage, stage and piano, and the second day I got there, and to see a, a cast and chorus of young, diverse performers that literally gave me the old goose flesh. And, yeah. properly did that that was it felt like the future and it felt like that that, that would it that i never expected that a chorus like that and a cast like that would have ever been available to me you know yeah. that, that were full of some of the best young opera and musical theater talent that broadway has and it was oh it was i felt so proud of that and so that is my proudest that is without a shadow of doubt my proudest moment and aside of that that there was there were drag queens in the cast, um, or drag queen characters in the cast, and they pose as still a very hot show. If you watch it, they refer to me as their house mother um, of the House of Bell. Their creation Amazing. entirely. Um, but if you hashtag search on Instagram or on um, Twitter, you'll come across occasional hashtag House of Bell. Um, and that's something that I'm, I'm not going to relinquish that. <laughs> I, it is a joy to be considered to be a, a, oh, of the house of death. That, that is. That's amazing. That, I think you just like knock all stigmas of opera like right out of the park there. Like, it's like <laughs> yeah. But that's what we're here to do. You know, there oh. shouldn't be any stigmas. There sh- it should, it's, it's, it's such a broad, you know, Yes, I've done very, very grand opera. I've done this hardcore symphonic, you know, I've, I've done that and I will continue to do that. But, you know, I did Stonewall, but then you look at what BMP does in, in New York, you know, with what Beth's doing in New York with, with often amplified, often un, very unusual, often rock instruments that are being used in opera with, with BMP. 
you know, with their better writing projects. It's, there's so much, there's so much diversity in what we are able to do that we just need even more ambassadors and advocates to show the world what we're up to because, because there's so much. Very true. We hope COVID hasn't put too much of a block on your creativity, but I feel like for composers, it hasn't really changed anything because you're home most of the time. Yeah, that's, no, exactly, exactly. So <laughs> I, went, I went into lockdown with two commissions, um, a, a song cycle, um, two song cycles, one for baritone, one for bass baritone, and now they actually follow on from Stonewall. Um, the work I did on Stonewall and, and just the message on the messaging of Stonewall, you know, giving back to my community, uh, really did something. It was like, okay, right, we've, we've, this is something I, I need to answer. There was an itch that developed in me that I needed to, that I didn't, you know, that I needed to, to scratch. So the first song cycle um, for Baritone is a setting of um, Tom Gunn's The Man With Night Sweats cycle, a poetry or collection of poems, an anthology of poems, which is about um, a man, or it's about the HIV AIDS crisis in the 80s. Um, and he tells it in different voices, but the way I've, I've threaded the poems together, it's a man watching his beloved, loved ones dying around him and also coming to the realization that he is going to die himself. So that premieres um, in the London Song Festival in, in uh, early December, Baritone. Uh, and then I also have. And this, this took a, a, a good while at the first chunk of the lockdown. The song cycle called Bass Baritone, which um, premieres at the Mozarteum in Salzburg um, with the American bass baritone Douglas Williams and the pianist Levi Hammer. And, and uh, that is a setting of Walt Whitman's poems um, from his Leaves of Grass, selections of, because that's a massive collection. And, and again, that talks about more of the kind of man-to-man intimacy. Um, obviously, at the time, it was written in a slightly more guarded, metaphorical way. But I think I've put it together in a way that it's a little bit more explicit um, in celebration of that. So they're the two pieces I've got coming up that got me through, got me through COVID. But what also happened was that um, the first revival of Jack the Ripper, the Women of Whitechapel, was meant to take place uh, this October at Opera North. So that's going to be rescheduled for the next, within the next year. So that's the direct implication. And I think for composers, uh, that is where we've been hit the most, where things have been rescheduled. Also, um, there were commissions that were just about to be confirmed for me before we went into lockdown and everything, obviously, because people have to short-term plan at the moment. Lots of things are on ice uh, at the moment until medium and long-term planning comes. And then, and then hopefully things will, um, well, there'll be, there'll be, you know, uh, more of a turnover, more dialogue op opening. But I think that's the same, not just for composers, but for singers. You know, I shouldn't think there are too many 2024, 2025 contracts being negotiated at the moment until houses and, and concert houses, as well as opera houses, kind of get their head around the short termism of everything at the moment. Can I ask one more question? Do you have any tips for any young composers? that are coming into the industry? Yes, just be brazen, be brazen, be brazen, be brazen. I uh, started working with Deanna because um, I asked her autograph outside of a performance of Arabella that she was in at the Royal Opera House. <gasps> and I got to know her that way. Sorry, that's one of my favorite Arabella, authors. You like her? I just... She was Biakamili, you know, um, and I was like, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> 
so you know and i you, you can't rely on other people to come to you you just can't you know just, you know you might have a residency and that's please i hope that you know if you've got the opportunity to have any residencies or any kind of protege work grab it grab it grab it grab it grab it grab it but that doesn't necessarily guarantee you anything you are the only person you are mm -hmm. the only person responsible for your career and i mean that through knowing and <laughs> through having lived that no, no one can do anything no <laughs> you know we're all artists so, you know yeah you we have to strive and find our own path and i found particularly singers to be so wonderfully responsive to, to my reaching out to them to see if they wanted to collaborate on anything and this was before i'd done anything this is you know it's a little bit different now when i reach out to yeah. people they sometimes they know who i am sometimes they've They've, never, they've kind of heard of me or I'm familiar in a way or, you know, or, or they may have even been to mm. see something like that, you know. But even back then, the generosity of performers was always, always something very, very open-hearted and very, very warmly responsive. So I would say, who do you, who do you like to work with, you know? Who, who, who do you admire? Not just one person, but who, who's, what's in the sphere? Where, what, who would you like to work with? Um, and you know what? Either reach out to their agent first of all, if you want to be tentative, and just say, look, I am. I know I'm only just graduated, or you know, but I wondered if you, your artist, would be interested in me collaborating with them. You know, it's probably not very PC to say this, but I did a lot of stuff for free at the beginning. I did a lot for free because, you know. And I know one should expect, no, no one asked me to. So I'm not saying that I was, I was never engaged by any kind of house to do anything for free. I don't mean that. I meant I chose to write free. I had a day job, which meant I could. Um, so, mm. you know, but just see who, who musically, whether it's an oboist, whether it's a lutenist, you know, what, whatever singer, reach out to them or reach out to other composers and see, you know, <laughs> You know, I'm very, I, I sometimes get approached by other composers to see if they, you know, for advice. To reach out to people because largely, as we've all found through social media, we are open to just chatting and sharing what we know or learning new stuff ourselves because yeah. I've got so much to learn. That just ask people if they're up for it. And they'll, they'll only say no. They won't punch you in the face or, or, or ask for money. <laughs> it's, it's not like they, they can't take anything away from you other than you feeling a little bit slighted. But don't get slighted, you know, because there will be people that want to work with you and just determine who those mm. people are. Determine who your people are, what your genre is. If you even have one, you might be somebody who can just do everything. Um, and just reach out because people are lovely. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of re reaching out, um, yeah. where is it that people can find you, Ian, on the Instagram or how, how is best to contact you? It's Ian Bell Music. My general handles are Ian Bell Music, so that's Twitter. Instagram. I've got an official Facebook page, um, and I'm. I've got a website, ianbellmusic.com. So there are little selections of things on there. But no, I've got. I've got music. I've got videos. I've got links to things. Yeah, I'm sure our listeners will check it out. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. It's a, ple it's a pleasure to you know just yak on about what I do. Yeah. <laughs> Very down. So this week's question of the week is yeah. what is your favorite contemporary opera see that we tricked the people here <laughs> <laughs> wasn't just any opera 
contemporary opera. Which, I think it's very obvious why we asked this question. Well, obviously, following on from Ian's podcast, um, we've got to we've got to give credit to all of Ian's operas, um, which were mentioned because they are great, and I'm really sad that I've not seen any of them live yet. I know, um, but I I can't wait for the day I can't that wait I do. For the day. But um, the responses are in. They are in. Comments are in. Surprisingly, no repeats this week. Incredible. So we have so many new um, operas. Starting with Alberto Alonso, I'm going to say, 25, said Nixon in China, which is by John Adams, not the second president of the United States. (laughs) No. But the (laughs) opera composer, who I was very confused about, especially because he wrote an opera, um, Little Women. Which I haven't seen, and mm. which is very sad to me because it's one of my favorite books growing up. But just a little bit about Nixon in China. I've been reading off of Wikipedia here. Nixon in China is an opera in three acts by John Adams with libretto by Alice Goodman. Adams' first opera, it was inspired by the U.S. President Richard Nixon's 1972 visit to China. The work premiered at the Houston Grand Opera on October 22nd. 1987 in a production by Peter Sellers with choreography by Mark Morris. I'm going to stop there. So definitely go check out more. Then next up we heard from Rusna, who we know uh, from the Royal Academy. Uh, and she said a very famous one, The Ballad of Baby Doe. Now I have, I do know this one. Isn't it's... that the one with the aria that everyone sings? The letter aria. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think so. Yeah. The Ballad of Baby Doe by Douglas Moore, is about actual historical figures. Elizabeth Baby Doe is an actual woman in history and it tracks her life um, and the postscript ending for telling Baby's death. Hmm. I don't really I don't really know anything much about the plot, but the music is amazing. But Baby Doe actually has five arias throughout, that's inc- that's which is, lot. you know, the, I think one of the best things as a... a Female singer listening to this. Oh. As a soprano specifically. Yeah. <laughs> Next up we have um, by my friend Joseph Gansert. And he says Silent Night by Kevin Putz. Which I think Kevin has the best last name in the world. <laughs> Silent Night uh, op- is an opera in two acts. The work had its premiere world premiere at the Ordway Theatre in Minnesota. And it's with a libretto by Mark Campbell, and it's based on Joie Noël, which I'm assuming is a book about Christmas, Mm. because it says Merry Christmas. It's a 2015 epic film. Ooh, epic war drama. This is right up my alley. I love (laughs) epic war dramas. Um, Based on Christmas Truce of December 1914. Oh, I'm watching this this weekend. (laughs) I love how we're like, you can hear us discovering these operas in real time. Next up, we had Sweets by Kate from Danny Phantom suggested that. And that is by Griffin Candies. Yeah. I think so. Again, I don't know this one. But I'm just reading the synopsis here. It says, when Elizabeth's father dies suddenly, she must return to the small town that shunned her 12 years before. Amidst the outwardly cheery glow of the 1950s, love the 1950s, <laughs> Elizabeth and her partner, Kate, must square with the lurking disapproval of the town, the teetering success of Elizabeth's family business, and the devil, literally. So, 
It's a lesbian love story, right? Yeah. This sounds really great. (laughs) Yeah. Next up, we have Written on Skin, which was sent in by Deviant Opera, Written on Skin, which is an opera composed by George Benjamin. And actually, I really wanted to go see this when it was premiered. Not premiered. When it was playing at the Royal Opera House. I think it was last year or two years ago. But I didn't get to go, so I don't really know much about it. (laughs) The libretto is by Martin Crimp. And, I mean, I just need to read more about this one because everyone talks about it being, like, incredible. Next up, we had Claire Attempts sending Philip Glass's Akhenaten. And I don't... I would be very surprised if this one didn't come up because it has been made very famous quite recently, hasn't it? Um, By Anthony Ross Constanzo. Um, And the Met production that, like, hired, like, the most expensive costume designs Ever. Didn't uh, Anthony have actual like gold? Yeah, he on had his gold head. leaf on his entire head. Amazing. There is a really great episode of Aria Code, which is another podcast run by WQXR, um, where he talks to, um, where he talks about learning the role and singing the role, and it's incredible. Yeah, and he is a gem of a human as well. He is a gem of a human. <laughs> <laughs> And lastly, um, Eugenia Forteza, who we all know from 360 of Opera, sent in Tabula Rasa. The libretto is by B. Goodwin, and the music was composed by Felix Girard. And there's a whole thing about it on Opera Wire, but also it's fully on YouTube, so you can go check it out. And it's... I I mean, this looks incredible. I have to go check it out, too. It takes place in the 1920s in Mm -hmm. France, so... Yes, please, again. (laughs) But it follows an American artist named Man Ray as he follows his creative muse in the 1920s of France. Yes, please. Yes, yes, please. I hope you listeners have a pen and paper and have written all of these down um, because there's some amazing, amazing productions out there of these. Um, Yeah, they will all also be on our stories and on our highlights on Instagram, so make sure you are following us there so you never miss out. Well, that is the end of episode 44 of AA Opera Podcast. Thank you so much to Ian Bell for being here and speaking with us. It was an incredible podcast to record and we really hope that you guys enjoyed listening to it. Please make sure to check us out on Patreon if you really, really loved it. You can find us at www.patreon.com slash AA Opera. And be sure to check us out on all social media. Yes, we are at AA Opera on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And don't forget that new website. And, oh my god, our new website. (laughs) It is actually up and running, and Ashley did a beautiful job with it, so definitely go check it out. And and maybe even subscribe to our coming newsletter. Mm -hmm. AAOperapod.com We'll see you over there. Yeah. Have a great week. Bye, guys.